Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Beth Harpaz, guest hosting a new series for the New Books Network, presented by the Gotham Center for New York City History at CUNY, the City University of New York. Today, I'll be speaking with Lisandro Perez, professor at John Jay College, which is part of CUNY. He is the author of a new book called Sugar, Cigars, and Revolution, The Making of Cuban New York. The book reveals an incredible slice of Cuban-American history that unfolded not in Miami, but right here in New York City. Professor Perez is a sociologist in the Department of Latin American and Latino-Latina Studies at John Jay College, and my role in all of this is as the editor of a CUNY website called SUM, S-U-M, where we showcase scholarship by CUNY faculty, including books like Sugar, Cigars, and Revolution. Welcome, Professor Perez. It's great to speak with you. Thank you for inviting me to uh, New Books in History. So I have lived in New York City all my life. I've been to Cuba. I've been to Miami. And other than eating Cuban food in New York, actually Cuban Chinese food, and we'll get to the origins of that a little later, um, I've never really given any thought to there being much of a Cuban presence in New York City. And maybe showing my age, I do remember the old I Love Lucy show when I was a kid. Her husband, Desi Arnaz, was Cuban. They lived in New York City. But other than that, Cubans in New York, I mean, today in 2018, the history of that community is pretty invisible. And yet you say in your book that New York was the most important city for Cubans in the U.S. until 1960. So let's start maybe uh, by just summing up for listeners, what went on in New York that made it such an important place in Cuban-American history? Give us the big picture. Well, it was it was the largest community of Cubans in the United States uh, by far uh, until Ybor City opened in 1886, um, and then it remained it regained its primacy again in the 1920s, and remained so until 1960, uh, when Miami, of course, uh, took over with the uh, new immigrants from post-revolutionary Cuba. But New York in the 19th century was not only the most important city for Cubans; it was also the largest. Cubans in New York were the largest group of uh, Latin Americans in New York City, and it was also the largest community of, of Latin Americans in the United States, east of the Mississippi. So uh, I was uh, a little bit surprised when I really started reading into that history that there was really so little that was known of it. We knew quite a we knew a bit about its political activism, but as a sociologist, I wanted to know more about that community, and so that's why I undertook this book. All right, let's drill down a little to the details and, and go back to where you start your book. The year is 1823. New York is a thriving port city. It's already a global center of finance, and in that year, 1823, 97 ships arrive in New York from Cuba. 97, that's a lot. Why? What were they bringing here? Why was there so much commerce and traffic between Cuba and New York in the early 19th century. 
Well, the origins of that traffic actually uh, go back even much further than 1823. It goes back to even before the American Revolution. Uh, the British took over Havana in 1762 uh, and occupied it for 11 months, and that opened up traffic with the British North American colonies. And at that time, Cuba didn't have a lot to sell, uh, but the traffic was the, 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 the traffic in ships was already initiated. And what eventually Cuba did sell in large amounts was sugar. Uh, there was a sugar revolution in Cuba uh, by which many of the um, uh, what became the aristocracy, the sugarocracy, as one historian calls it in Cuba, purchased land, large amounts of land and started producing sugar for the world market. Uh, and it was New York that was the principal market uh, for that sugar. Uh, New York had the largest number of refineries anywhere in the U.S. And there were these mercantile agents in New York City that acted as commission agents. They would receive the sugar from um, uh, from the from the growers and the planters in Cuba and sell it for them to the refineries in New York. And that established a very very uh, intense. Uh, ship traffic that eventually included not only uh, bringing to New York cigars and tobacco, but then also uh, sending to Cuba manufactured goods that the new sugarocracy wanted to buy. Now, you you actually talk a lot in the book about this, uh, you call them the sugarocracy here in our conversation, uh, you know, the landed gentry of Cuba putting down these roots in New York City. These were the aristocrats who made their fortunes, as you say, in the sugar trade. And, you know, we want to be sure to point out that Cuba was one of the last countries to abolish slavery. So if you're making your money off a sugar plantation in Cuba, uh, you're making your money off of slave labor. And so these plantation owners, they're sending their children to school in New York, they're buying New York real estate. Uh, they live a very fancy life on their visits here, on their, the time they spend in New York. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, when they sold their sugar here in New York, uh, they had accounts with these uh, mercantile houses. They were called counting houses in lower Manhattan. The most prominent of them was Moses Taylor and Company. And by the way, there's a very large archive of the Moses Taylor papers uh, documenting all of this in the New York Public Library. Uh, and and through that traffic, we see how uh, these uh, landowners in Cuba um, uh, who sold their sugar in New York maintained these very large accounts. Uh, they didn't want their money in Cuba, their, their liquid assets in Cuba. They wanted them in New York. And these county, county houses managed this money for them, making investments, but also buying things for them. Uh, things that they needed, machinery that they needed for their sugar mills, carriages to ride around in Havana, uh, uh, linen, uh, silverware, uh, just about anything. And also, they received uh, um, the children of many of these uh, landowners who wanted their children educated in the U.S. Increasingly, because of this traffic and because they were selling in New York, New York became, I argue in the book, this sort of place where uh, Cubans was a reference point for Cubans. It was kind of in the Cuban consciousness, that other place. And they traveled extensively to New York. They sent their children to be educated in, in boarding schools in the Hudson Valley and in New Jersey. Uh, the county houses managed all of this for them. And so there was this traffic that, that occurred throughout the first half, particularly of the, uh, of the 19th century. There was an estimate that there had been already by the middle of the 19th century about 2,000 uh, Cuban children, uh, Cuban young men who had been educated uh, in in the United States, and most of those 
Soho's were in New York. So there was this traffic, and New York became this sort of place of reference for this elite, for this Havana-based elite in Cuba. You also talk in the book about other social classes of Cubans who made their way to New York, Afro-Cubans, Chinese Cubans, working class Cubans. Give us a sliver of insight into each of those demographics. And, and you know, you, you mentioned the cigar trade uh, earlier, uh, you know, because long before Ybor City and Tampa, there were Cuban cigar makers in New York City. Tell us a little bit about about those uh, those those cohorts, those sectors. Well, what we call Havana, uh, what we call Havana Clear uh, uh, Tobacco Leaves, and that was a title that was given to in New York, became very um, uh, desirable in New York. And there was already a large cigar manufacturing industry in, in New York, largely established by German immigrants. And uh, cigar leaves started being imported from Cuba early in the 19th century, well, about 1840s, 1850s, 1860s or so. Later, that was followed by Cuban cigar workers, per se. Most of those initially were um, were white, but by the 1870s, there's an increasing number of Afro-Cuban cigar workers. And, and so let me just interrupt you for a second. Were those – so those were – had they been slaves likely at one time and they uh, earned their freedom at some point? Or how, how did slavery figure into that Afro-Cuban demographic in New York? Uh, many of them uh, had been uh, free cigar workers uh, in Cuba. Uh, some of them had, had uh, those that had become cigar workers when they came to New York. It's also important to keep in mind that that landed aristocracy that came to New York, and they came in large numbers starting in about 1869, 1870, because the war broke out in Cuba. Um, those that came brought their house slaves with them. Uh, and that was the many ways the beginning, the early beginnings of an Afro-Cuban community in New York when these slave owners, and I see them, you know, I can see them in the census schedules, uh, that they have persons born in Cuba who are black and who are domestic servants living in their households. Many of those became emancipated themselves, of course, in New York after the Civil War and, uh, and, and the abolition of slavery in New York and in the United States. And so they um, essentially um, went into other trades of which cigar was one of them. Uh, there were also Chinese Cubans, for example. Uh, 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 the Chinese were taken to Cuba to replace a lot of African slave labor. Uh, as indentured servants. Uh, and Cuban law, actually Spanish law, dictated that once those arrangements are over, they were supposed to leave Cuba. Well, the, 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 the ships that, the quickest ship you can get on in Havana was going to New York. That is because of that traffic. And you actually see the ship, ship manifest, uh, of Chinese Cubans arriving, uh, in, in New York City. And they became part, some of them might have left again to China, but some of them became part of the Chinese community in New York City. Wow. Uh, I mean, that's just, it's fascinating stuff. And, you know, one of the things that I loved about your book, you know, you are a sociologist, you did an incredible amount of uh, research combing through the census uh, roles from, you know, every decade in, in the 19th century and uh, giving us such great details about uh, where people lived, what their households were uh, consisting of, you know, their their race. And uh, it's, it's, it's so cool how that 
information that you gleaned from the census um, tells these stories to us. Um, I, I attended a few uh, weeks ago a reading that you did, uh, Professor Perez, a little book talk here uh, at uh, the Graduate Center of City University of New York. And you talked a little bit about the, the research you did at the New York Public Library. Could you just describe that for us? Because I, I, people may not be aware of, you know, that the richness of that archive and, and how it speaks to us, you know, a century later. Well, I, I'm a sociologist, so uh, my approach to this topic, unlike perhaps a historian, was not to start with the archives, which I eventually did use, was not to start with, say, the newspapers that they had published, and there's been some studies of the newspapers and the political activism of the Cuban community. My instinct was to start with uh, the censuses. I wanted to get a complete picture of the community as a sociologist. And so many of these um, uh, genealogical uh, research uh, tools that are available online, such as Ancestry, for example, um, are very powerful tools for this because although most people search on these for their ancestors, you could search on these by, for example, place of birth and get all of the census forms, and by that I mean the questionnaires, not the statistics, but the actual forms that were filled out when an enumerator went to people's houses and jotted down who lived there, their characteristics, and so forth. And so I have, I have actually been able to print out from that source and others uh, the census forms for all persons born in Cuba who were enumerated by the New York, uh, by the U.S. federal census in New York City between 1850 and 1880. And of course, that paints a tremendous picture. It tells you where they lived. Uh, it tells you what their occupations were. It tells you about their race. It tells you about household arrangements. Uh, you can find, um, for example, um, uh, a lot of, a lot of uh, neighborhoods that were created, uh, by Cubans. And so my, as a sociologist, I didn't want to deal with this Cuban community um, is as sort of, you know, just political activists who wrote things. I wanted to put the feet on the ground, yeah. essentially, on the sidewalk of New York and where they lived. And that was actually interesting because there were several things that came out of that that, that, uh, that uh, were illustrative of that history and of looking at that community as a physical kind of, you know, uh, entity. Uh, not just a set of relationships, but as a physical on the ground entity. And what what um what was like the peak year, and what was the number? What was the most number of Cubans that that lived in New York City, and and in what year? And and what were some of the neighborhoods where you found uh, concentrations of Cuban uh, Cuban Americans or Cuban emigres? Well, the high water mark in the in the nineteenth century is the census of 1870, and the reason for that is that in 1868. October, a war breaks up in Cuba, actually led not by the elite in Havana, the, 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 the Cuban elites in Havana, but by the Easterners. Uh, the, uh, that sugarocracy, those elites in the, in the West, uh, in Havana, uh, saw themselves forced to leave because they were either had to be loyal to Spain or essentially be uh, persecuted. So they left, and they left in very large numbers, and I have a chapter in my book that documents that exodus of the most prominent Cuban, by this time I mean Cuban in the sense that they're already second, third generation Cubans, they do not have an identification of Spanish. They find themselves uh, persecuted by this new uh, uh, wave of repression that the Spanish unleashed, and they left. And so in 1870, 
uh, is the high water mark. And again, they left, many of them left with their house slaves. Uh, eventually, during the 1870s, uh, the community grew, but that high water mark from the census of 1870, and I found about 3,000 uh, persons born in Cuba that lived in the five boroughs, uh, what would then, what would order now the five boroughs, uh, uh, of New York City. Uh, and that's a fairly high number because it doesn't include, for example, their children who were born uh, in the U.S. It doesn't include a lot of people who also identified as being Spanish. After all, Cuba is not a political entity. They don't, they have a Spanish passport. And there were some who said when they asked where were you born, they said in Spain because they considered Cuba part of Spain. So that 3,000, even 3,000 in 1870, which I think is a significant number, was still, is still an undercount. The, the richer uh, people, the rich people lived where rich people lived in Manhattan. A lot of them lived in the Madison Square Park area. Uh, the working class, especially when the cigar workers came in, worked in more working class areas or what are now Soho, uh, Tribeca, uh, the West Village in that area. Uh, but a lot of the Afro-Cubans, of course, who came as, as slaves and were domestic servants lived uh, with of course, their um, uh, their employers, so to speak, uh, in uh, in these fashionable neighborhoods. Yeah, and uh, you know, as a New Yorker, it was there was something really thrilling about reading. You know, you give the exact addresses where you know various individuals lived, and it was it was very exciting to to see an address. You know, where someone lived in the eighteen hundreds, and it's you know it's West Twenty Seventh Street. Okay, I know what West Twenty Seventh Street looks like, um, and I know Class and Avenue in Brooklyn, which is where the great Jose. Mar- Marti lived in a boarding house. Um, let's talk about Jose Marti, the great Cuban hero, the great poet. Uh, surely everyone listening to this podcast knows the beautiful song Guantanamera, which was inspired by a Marti poem. Uh, and Marti, of course, devoted his life to the cause of liberating Cuba from Spain. Cuba was a Spanish colony, and you write that uh, Marti himself was imprisoned by the Spaniards when he was a teenager in Cuba for his political activity. Uh, he then was sent to Spain eventually he made his way to New York. Um, you say in the book that he spent most of his adult life in New York City. That That is simply astonishing on the face of it. I mean, you know, you talk about Jose Marti, and then if you were to say to someone, oh, yes, and he lived most of his life in New York City, people would be like, what? So why did he spend most of his time in New York? What was he doing here? Well, he arrived in, in, in 1880, January 1880. Then he left for several months to Venezuela, but by October of 1880, he was back here, and then he lived in an uninterrupted fashion. In fact, he, we don't have a lot of record of him leaving uh, the, uh, the, the, the New York, the, the tri-state area, uh, let's say, uh, until about 1891 or 1892. And he left definitively, uh, to Cuba where he was killed, uh, in, uh, February, actually January of 1895. So if you look at that, that's between 1881, 1881 to 1895. This is a man who died when he was 42 years old. So uh, the bulk of his adult life by far was spent in New York. And, and, and he was, he was in New York because it was the closest place to Cuba. In other words, uh, the ship traffic, everything, uh, you could put a, a letter in the mail you know, uh, and have it arrive in Cuba uh, because there was a fairly soon because there was a ship leaving practically every day because of this commerce. It was also the place where 
modernity, you know, was being exercised on a large scale uh, in the world uh, and uh, of ur- patterns of urban modernity. And and Marti made a living writing a great deal about what he saw in New York and whether New York and, by extension, the United States and these new patterns of modernity were really what was needed for Latin America and specifically for the nation that he was uh, trying to build, which was the Cuban nation. So New York was a logical place for him. Uh, I think Key West might have been closer, but Key West was a smaller community. I think the the, the intellectual and uh, uh, and political and uh, everything weight of New York was something that Mati found uh, very attractive. And besides, he enjoyed New York a great deal. I have a lot of, uh, you know, his chronicles talking about going to eat at Delmonico's and uh, going to Barnum's and so forth. So uh, he was never an American in, in the sense of the U.S. Uh, uh, he never identified with the U.S., but he was a New Yorker, which is, even today, we think being a New Yorker is kind of a, a global sort of identification, not a not just a U.S. identification. And And I think that it was from there of course, that he launched his definitive independence movement. Right. There was there was certainly a lot of political activism going on. Uh, you know, Jose Marti and many other Cubans who lived in New York. You you write about the newspapers and the meetings and, and all of that. Um, one funny little side note here. Uh, you know, some New Yorkers may know that there is a statue of Jose Marti uh, at the one of the entrances to Central Park on 59th Street. I think it's around Sixth Avenue. Um, and you you told me, Professor Perez, that you recently went to an unveiling of a copy of this very statue in Havana. Um, Jose Marti is on horseback in this sculpture, and he has a very anguished look on his face. Uh, surely Jose Marti was not riding horses around New York City during the years he lived here. You you told me a funny story about this statue. Uh, let's let's recount it here. Well, uh, that story uh, that uh, story is actually a, a very recent day because just in January of this year, uh, a, a, as you indicated, a replica and, and a complete replica down to the size and, and even the pedestal of it was inaugurated in Havana, uh, and uh, and it's a very strange statue of Marti because um, it's actually aesthetically very dynamic and it shows the moment in which he's hit by bullets by the Spanish, and he's falling off the horse. If you don't know the backstory, you're wondering what's going on with him and his horse, and his horse has a sort of wild look on his face. It was a, a sculpture done by Anne Huntington, uh, who was a, a woman uh, with who had quite a bit of money herself, and she was a, a very good sculptor, and she, and she uh, did horses. That's what she did. Uh, and she donated that statue in, in the 1950s to the city of New York. Uh, but of course, Marti had to be on a horse because Huntington did horses. <laughs> and, and we know, and we know that, we do know that the one time Marti was in horses when he was killed. And so she depicts that moment. Uh, it's strange because he's in a suit as if he just, you know, was walking along New York. We know he wasn't in a suit in the countryside in Cuba, uh, when he was there with Cuban forces. Um, uh, when he had joined the Cuban forces that he helped to organize. Uh, so he's shown in that, in, in that sort of strange, um, way. It's not a, it's a, it's a statue that's actually aesthetically very good. In Central Park, it's in a, in a very constrained space, so there's no perspective on it. I, I never thought it was a good idea to do a replica. It costs a lot of money, and, and I don't think that Cuba needs another statue of Marti. Uh, there are plenty of them. But, you know, when I went to the inauguration in, in January, um, 
it it really looks good in Havana. It's in a, a, a sort of an esplanade. It has perspective. It it looks very grand. It looks even better there than in, than in Central Park. And I think the historian of the city of Havana, uh, who by the way I've taken on tours of of um, of uh, New York uh, Cuban uh, landmarks in New York City, the historian of the city of Havana has to be credited for the effort uh, to uh, to do that replica. All right. And, and another individual whom you write about in the book, uh, who I, I want to mention in our talk is Father Felix uh, Varela, a Cuban priest. Uh, he arrives in 1823. That's the year you start your historical account. Tell us a little bit about Father Varela's life. Why was he so important in the history of New York City? Well, he's another one who decided that although he didn't like the English language and he didn't like the cold of New York City, had to stay in New York. And he stayed there. Uh, from the time he arrived in December of 1823 all the way to 1849. Uh, and after that, he has poor health. He goes to St. Augustine, Florida, where he dies a couple of years after that. Uh, he was a very important figure, and, and he's one of the overlooked figures in, in New York history. Because you could say that Martí was more involved with his independence efforts, but Varela actually made important contributions in New York City, specifically to the Archdiocese of New York. Um, in fact, he was considered one time the, to, to be bishop uh, of New York City. Uh, he came at a time, of course, in which there was a lot, great deal of what was called anti-papist sentiment um, and anti-immigrant sentiment, and he became a sort of protector of the Irish. Uh, he had no alternative but to stay in New York. He didn't want to return uh, to Cuba, but he, there was a death sentence hanging over him. In fact, a death sentence that the Spanish authorities wanted to put into effect in New York because they actually sent an assassin uh, to New York City to, to kill him, but but he was sort of uh, flushed out by the Irish parishioners, um, uh, his Irish parishioners. He is, uh, there are two churches uh, currently in New York that have plaques in front uh, indicating that indeed Varela founded these parishes. One is the Church of the Transfiguration on Mott Street in Chinatown, and the other one is St. James. Uh, uh, at St. James Place. Both of those have uh, plaques that testify, that, that document Varela's uh, contribution to the city. That's, that's just fascinating. Um, you mentioned a little earlier in our, in our talk uh, that New York was a sort of a modernist city uh, in the 19th century. And one of the aspects of your book, uh, you, you describe the way in which you believe New York helped shape Cuban identity. I, I think you make a, a very convincing case that uh, Cuban intellectuals and activists and aristocrats, having been exposed to the culture and the daily life of this kind of, you know, modern New York, that they kind of rejected the old world uh, European sensibilities of Spain. And they very intentionally embraced, uh, you know, what you call this modernist identity. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and maybe give us uh, an example or two of how that modernist identity Entity manifested itself uh, in Cuban culture in Cuba. Even the you know uh, even the uh, the slave owners um, had an orientation uh, uh, of sort of wanting to to be modern. Uh, they, for example, kept up on all the, the chemical advances in, in science uh, uh, that would help them to better granulate and process sugar. They immediately applied uh, steam. Uh, driven, um, steam driven, uh, grinders in their mills. All of these they bought from the U.S. They saw the U.S. as this model of progress, of technological advance. There were scientific societies founded by these, 
uh, planters in Havana to advance precisely the application of science uh, to sort of um, uh, economic models of change. And it, it was a really interesting orientation. Spain, um, which of course uh, was sort of mired in traditional patterns of, you know, both religiosity and so forth, was, was not that model. And increasingly, Cubans looked to the United States uh, as being that model. There were poets that came and, and talked about, oh, this, this uh, you know, new bridge across Niagara Falls. <laughs> they did that, a suspension bridge. And, and so there was this sort of a model. And I think the most evident manifestation of that later on in the 19th century is baseball. Um, you don't hear anything about Cubans ever associated with bullfighting. But there was bullfighting, of course, in Cuba in the early colonial days. Uh, there was the latter part of the 19th century, through a New York connection, through Fordham University, in fact, you start getting uh, baseball players uh, in Cuba. You start having Cubans going to the United States, playing baseball in the United States, and going back. Well, by the, you know, by the 1880s and so, the competition for the public arenas uh, in Havana and in other cities in Cuba, started favoring baseball, not bullfighting. And bullfighting is literally erased. Uh, and it was symbolic of the fact that, that a lot of, of, of these sort of uh, uh, traditional patterns uh, that Spain meant to Cuba were being erased in favor of uh, of these uh, you know new American ways, which included baseball. The first magazine, one of the first magazines in Cuba about baseball was called Baseball and Modernity. That was the that was the actual title of it, and baseball was seen as a modern game, and and eventually it won out, and we know Cubans, of course, uh, became great baseball fans and great baseball players as a result of that, and that's one manifestation of that. Uh, another thing I, m- I might add on that is that Marti, uh we now look at some of his chronicles on immigration to New York, and you know the the crowding in the Lower East Side, with some. Um, uh, you know, we look at it and say, hmm, he was kind of a modern sort of guy, but he, he actually was a little bit suspicious of this immigration because he felt that, that all of these European immigrants coming into New York and into the United States were bringing with them traditional patterns, you know, that might undermine this progressive American republic that had been established by these enlightened men, right? Uh, and so, uh, they, uh, he, he was a little bit of, of an anti-immigrant by being an immigrant himself, uh, but he was just very, very concerned about European influences in America. So, yeah, baseball versus bullfighting and the fact that baseball won out in Cuba, partly because of this connection to New York and the United States, that is an absolutely brilliant example of how, uh, you know, how, how New York had this modernist influence on, on Cuban culture. That's absolutely brilliant. I guess the one last thing that I wanted to uh, bring out here, we we, uh, we opened up by saying that New York was the most important city for Cubans in the U.S. until 1960. And just, you know, for those listeners who might not be up on their Cold War history, I mean, 1960 is already, you know, almost 60 years ago. Um, just remind us, what happened at that point that resulted in a shift of the Cuban-American uh, emigrate community from uh, kind of being focused on New York to being focused more on Miami? Just kind of sum up for us uh, those that tumultuous uh, moment in history. Going back to the 19th century, when when Cubans were going to New York, of course, needless to say, Miami did not exist, even exist at that time. So there was no no option of Miami uh, for Cubans that were leaving Cuba in the 19th century, and even even in the early uh, 20th century, there is a Cuban migration in the early part of the 
country. Uh, uh, and, um, and in that migration, you know, again, they go to New York where the jobs are. It was not too different from the, say, the Puerto Rican migration to New York at the same time, you know, looking for jobs and so forth. Uh, so even into the 1940s and, and, and the 50s, uh, still New York was the principal destination. Miami was a sort of, you know, tourist city, uh, that, that was only really, uh, primarily for winter, you know, the winter tourists. Uh, who came down in winter residence. But with the revolution that uh, starts in Cuba in 1959, there were uh, so many people who actually went um, uh, to New York, uh, to Miami. They started going there, and there was an exodus from uh, 1959 to uh, certainly 1962, and then it continued of people leaving Cuba. Uh, I estimate that there, in 1958 or so, there would have been about 50,000 Cubans living in the United States. Uh, we're now looking at about a million, a point point two million Cubans in the United States, and uh, 60, 65, almost 70 percent of those live in Miami. That's because Miami has been a city that's largely, since 1960, been shaped by Cubans. Mm. And Cubans, even those leaving Cuba more recently, find here a more uh, culturally and economically and so forth a more welcoming place. Right. All right. So the book is Sugar, Cigars, and Revolution, The Making of Cuban New York. It's published by NYU Press. The author is Lisandro Perez, professor at John Jay College, part of the City University of New York. Uh, it is a terrifically engaging read for anyone who's interested in New York history or the history of Cuba. Thank you so much, Professor Perez, for speaking with me today. Thank you for inviting me. And signing off now, I'm Beth Harpaz, editor of the CUNY website, SUM, that's uh, sum.cuny.edu, where we showcase faculty research like the book we've been talking about. Check us out. And on Twitter, we're at SUM underscore research. Finally, thanks to the Gotham Center and New Books Network for inviting me to guest host this podcast. <laughs>